Give attention to God's word now. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, for many bore a false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore a false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officer struck him with the palms of their hands. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Mark fourteen sixty-five. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, help us as we come to your word now. Help us to hear. Help us to understand. Help us to see our Savior. And Lord, help us to see how his greatness, his majesty amid this horrible rabble and mistreatment, Show him to be the one whom we need. May we then cling to him today, and may we be enabled by drawing nearer to him to also show him to a world in need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This episode, as Matthew and Mark tell it, is a little bit different from the way that John and Luke tell it. And what I mean by that is that Luke and John both deal with Peter before they really get to what Jesus experienced during this particular episode. But Matthew and Mark adopt a little bit of a different approach. You'll notice that Mark mentions Peter in verse 54, and then Peter kind of disappears from view and reappears again in verse 66. So Mark is, in a sense, going back and forth to let you know that these things are happening simultaneously. There's a contrast between Christ bearing witness to the truth in the upper room where this hearing is being held and Peter denying the truth in the courtyard below. However, because we have to focus, because we have to streamline and choose a little bit, we'll hold over that contrast, we'll hold over Peter's denial of Christ, even though Mark tells it as an interwoven story, until the next time we come to the Gospel of Mark. And so for today, I just want to throw that out there so you can have it in mind, so it can be a hook to hang more thoughts on down the road. But for today, we want to focus on Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. Now, there's a lot that perhaps requires explanation, and there's a lot of intriguing commentary that comes out. But however fascinating all the other parts are, we should not lose sight of this reality. Verse 62 is essentially the high point of the Gospel of Mark. Because what is the Gospel of Mark? What is it all about? 
Well, the question, the concern is, who is Jesus? Well, in Mark 14, 62, Jesus tells us who he is. Now, we've heard from other sources along the way, and Mark will show us still some other people who say something about this. But here from the mouth of Jesus himself, you have this great confession of his identity. And the initial response to that is tearing of garments, cries of blasphemy, a decision, yeah, he deserves to die. And then this disreputable treatment with spitting, with blindfolding, with smacking. It's not a great way to treat any prisoner, let alone the Lord Jesus. So let's go through it a little bit. He's been arrested. They take him away to the high priest. And somewhere in his house, he has a big enough room, upstairs chamber, where the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes are also there. Mark gives us the note that Peter's following, but we're going to put a parenthesis around that and deal with Peter later on, Lord willing. Now, with what attitude did this august body, the supreme governing council of the nation of Israel, meet? You notice how Mark describes it. Mark doesn't pull any punches here. He says, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. So what kind of a hearing was this? Was this a hearing to say, are you guilty or are you innocent? No, it was, how can we prove that you deserve death? They already have their verdict in mind. They know what conclusion they want to reach. Now they want to go through the steps to get there. That's why the title is rationalizing their rejection of Christ. They're not really interested in the truth. This is not to discover, to find out. This is to give an appearance of legality to the decision they've already settled on. In that sense, it's a formality. In that sense, nothing that's said or done is going to change the outcome. You can delay it. You can defer it, maybe. You notice that Jesus does not cooperate with it. He doesn't answer any of the accusations. But somehow, by the end, they all give the opinion, he is deserving of death. That's what verse 64 is talking about. They all condemned him. In other words, they didn't have the authority to execute him, but they said, oh yes, he definitely deserves to die. That was their (coughs) legal opinion, if not the sentence of a judge right then, because they had to refer him to the Roman authorities for an actual execution. So this is the kangaroo court to which the Lord Jesus is brought They're not interested in finding out the truth. They're interested in justifying the decision they have already made. And yet, it's not an easy process. The law required that witnesses had to agree. And they had many witnesses, but the false witnesses were not agreeing. They were telling different versions of a story. Those accusations failed. Then, you notice... Mark emphasizes this, verse 57. Some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say. He doesn't tell us the content of the other accusations. So what's the difference? Well, this is an accusation that was inaccurate, but it had some basis in reality. 
You remember in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 13, Jesus had predicted that the whole temple would be destroyed. And in John chapter 2, of course, Jesus had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. But that's the sort of thing that could willfully be misinterpreted in order to say, he said, I'll destroy this temple. And they qualify that it's a temple made with hands. Now, that is, on the one hand, a recognition. Any temple made with hands is too small to contain God. But that language of made with hands is often used when the Bible is criticizing idolatry. So they're making the Lord Jesus Christ out as speaking disrespectfully, as speaking somewhat disparagingly of the temple. Destroy this handmade temple, and I'll put up a better one, one made without hands. Well, of course, who can make things without hands? That's an implicit claim to deity. But even though this accusation, and Mark singles it out, this accusation was, I don't think better is the right word, this accusation was more plausible than the other stuff that people were saying. But even this accusation wasn't true. Even on this accusation, the witnesses couldn't agree. I think they couldn't agree because it wasn't true. Because they were jumbling and combining different things to put a bad light on them. And to all of this, the Lord Jesus said nothing. Well, then the high priest intervenes directly. The witnesses, the false witnesses have failed. Even the ones who brought the most plausible accusation couldn't get their story straight. So the high priest says, what's your response? And Jesus says nothing. Now, there is a lesson to be learned from that. We are not required to cooperate with kangaroo courts. We are not required to participate in show trials. We are not required to play along. We often feel, well, if we play along, if we're nice, if we don't make waves, maybe things will work out better. But you know, when people meet with the express purpose of finding a reason to kill you, Are you really going to placate them by being polite and playing along? That's not going to happen. The Lord Jesus knew that. The Lord Jesus wasn't trying to placate them. So he didn't get into it. He didn't participate. He didn't give to this bogus meeting the dignity of paying attention to them. He didn't pretend that it mattered. You see, he's free from that kind of pressure. He's free from that kind of insecurity. He doesn't need the approval of these people. He doesn't need them to have a good opinion of him. He's free to be who he ought to be. What is his concern? Well, his concern is that the scriptures must be fulfilled. We saw that last time we were in the Gospel of Mark. He said to the men who came to arrest him, the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so here... He's fulfilling the scripture. It's in Isaiah 53. As a lamb before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He doesn't care about the show trial. He doesn't care about the kangaroo court. He doesn't care about this august body. But he does care about carrying out the scripture. So he's silent. It's also a part of wisdom, right? If people make ridiculous accusations, 
Spending time denying them indicates that you took them seriously, indicates that they struck a nerve. Ignoring them completely is often the wiser as well as the more principled approach. And that's what the Lord Jesus does here. Even when the high priest asks him, what about these accusations? He doesn't respond. So the high priest changes tactics and says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The blessed is a euphemism for God. Throughout the centuries and at this time, Jewish people have often used euphemisms as a way to refer to God in order to make sure that you're speaking respectfully. And there's nothing wrong with that. You notice Jesus himself does that. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. There's another euphemism for God. God can be called the blessed. God can be called the power. When we say heaven does this or that, when we speak about the kingdom of heaven instead of of the kingdom of God, we're also using a euphemism, although a euphemism that brings out a particular aspect or characteristic of God's work or God's kingdom. So the question of the high priest could be put in these terms, are you the son of God? And everybody understood that that's what he was saying when he said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, putting those things together was a little bit of a surprise, but it indicated that he was not unaware of Jesus's teaching. He was not unaware that Jesus had done messianic things, although Jesus did not use the title Christ in Israel in public. He was also aware that there was evidence, that there were statements to the effect that Jesus was the Son of God. And so now he asks Jesus that question, who are you? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And of course, we understand that those are two different ways to refer to the same person. Whether the high priest had understood that before Jesus or not, we don't know. And now Jesus does reply. And isn't that interesting? He can ignore all of the accusations. He can ignore even the most plausible accusations. When the high priest asks him about them, he says nothing. But when he's asked who he is, now that he does answer. Let me just suggest to you that if we are called upon to suffer persecution in a legal way, if we experience legal harassment for the sake of Christ, that this is something to consider. This is something to bear in mind. We don't have to respond to everything. We don't have to dignify everything with a response. We can plead the fifth if we would like to do that. But there is one question we should always answer. Who is Jesus? If somebody asks us that question, it is not the time to hold our tongue. It is the time to speak up. Did Jesus know that he was signing his own death warrant with this answer? Sure. Yes, he did. Did he answer that way anyway? Again, yes, he did. This is the question we always answer. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Now, you notice Jesus doesn't answer with the exact same language the high priest used. The high priest used the language, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. So that's a yes. That's a very strong yes to that. But then he goes back to his own favorite title for himself. You will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power 
and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now that is a blend of two verses from the Old Testament, two passages. It's a blend of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And it's a blend of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes in the clouds before the Ancient of Days. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, of course, people could take that in different ways, but you might think about Psalm 80, the Son of Man whom God made strong for himself. In other words, God's vicegerent, the one who rules in God's name, the king of God's kingdom. And when you hear him sitting at the right hand of the power, well, that tells you, the Lord said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. And when you hear about him coming with the clouds of heaven, that is for the purpose of judgment. So through these biblical allusions, What the Lord Jesus does is he says, yes, I am the Christ. I am the son of God. That means I'm the son of man. That means I'm the king over God's kingdom. That means that I am the judge and you will see this whole council will know who is actually in charge. You're sitting here in judgment on the Lord Jesus. But who really has the authority to judge? It is the Lord himself. He turns it around. They think they're judging him. But that's not true. They're being judged by him on the basis of their response to him. He is the critical figure. Now, their response to that was to tear their clothes. They were ritually supposed to do that if they were witnesses to blasphemy. So the high priest is giving the signal to everyone else. We got what we needed. He's a blasphemer. We need to condemn him to death. There's a slight problem with that in that blasphemy would not be a capital offense for the Romans. So they're going to have to come up with something else to actually get him executed. But that's an administrative problem that they're clever enough to handle. But think about that contrast. The Lord Jesus says who he is. He announces that he is the glorious son of God, that he's the judge of the world, that he is the savior also. And they're so upset, they tear their clothes. That's a repudiation of Christ. That's a rejection of Christ in no uncertain terms. What a tragedy that when they heard the gospel, because what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. It is the proclamation of who he is. They heard the gospel and they tore their clothes. They called it blasphemy. Well, what hope is there for people who respond to the only hope with that kind of rejection? They will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. But that will be a fearful sight. That will be a terrible sight for them, for all who reject that message. We acknowledge, we confess who Jesus Christ is for our salvation, or we reject him one way or another for our condemnation. He is the pivotal person, and he's pivotal. Your whole eternity is decided based on your response to Jesus because he is the Christ, 
the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Judge of the world. So it is good to stop here, to pause a moment for everyone to just think quietly in your own heart. What is your response to Jesus? Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Is your response to that saying, ah, I don't think so? Is it to feel hostility? Is it to curse and spit? Or is it to say, yes, amen, he's my only hope? That's the most important question you're ever going to ask yourself. Who is Jesus to me? How do I respond to the truth about this Jesus? Again, we see how they do. They got what they wanted. No need of witnesses. Isn't that an interesting admission that the witnesses all failed? We don't need to keep this going any longer. We don't need to hear from anyone else. We heard it from his own mouth. You all heard it. We're all witnesses now. And they considered it blasphemy. So they judged. They gave the opinion that he was deserving of death. And now the problem would be how to secure the death penalty for him. But before they go there, they evidence their rejection. Some begin to spit on him. They put a blindfold on him and to hit him and to say prophesy. The idea it's brought out more fully in the parallel passages. Who hit you? Part of that may be there was a legend that the Messiah didn't need to use his eyes to tell who people were. The Messiah could tell who people were by how they smelled. But that's Jewish folk tales, obviously. The point is a from their point of view, a real prophet would know who hit him. Well, I think the Lord Jesus did know who hit him, but that wasn't really the important thing. The source of this discomfort was not relevant. The officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Well, what are they showing? They're showing contempt. When you spit in somebody's face, what does that mean? Well, it means hatred and it means contempt. Those are the two feelings communicated by spitting in somebody's face. Is, I don't care about you. You're beneath me. You're like the ground that I walk on and spit on. Hitting him also expresses this rejection, this dislike, a deep-seated hatred for Christ. The important thing was not the individuals who did this, although in passing, may we just say, what a wonderful recommendation for a court when this is their behavior to a sentence, their reaction in response to giving a legal opinion. Where's the dignity? Where's the majesty? Where's the decency in any of this? But when people reject the promised Messiah, what do we expect from them? They meant to disgrace him. They meant to humiliate him. They meant to vent their hatred upon him. But in all of this, what did they do? They too fulfilled the scriptures. Now, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures deliberately, consciously, on purpose, and at great cost to himself. They fulfilled the scriptures because they were so overcome with rage and hatred. They were so blinded in their disgust for Christ that they didn't even remember that it was written in Isaiah how the servant of the Lord did not hide his face from shame and spitting. 
not meaning to, but they too fulfilled the scriptures. God's plan was being carried out in this low moment of Christ's life. Low in in one sense, low in terms of his external circumstances, but also a very high moment in terms of his own clear statement that he is the Son of Man who will be enthroned at the right hand of God. You see, already Jesus is looking beyond the cross to the joy set before him. He's despising the shame. I mean, I don't like having people spit in my face. I've never been blindfolded and then struck, but I'm assuming I wouldn't like that either. That would be hard to go through. But Jesus has already raised his heart, his mind to heaven. He's already thinking about his ascension and exaltation. Well, there's a couple of lessons. There's at least a few applications for us in all of this. One is we learn again at our lowest moments. The Lord Jesus has been there. The Lord Jesus has gone through that or worse already for us. Are you mistreated? Are you overlooked? Do people behave like you're not a person? Do people behave like you don't matter? Do people behave like you're the ground beneath their feet? Do people reject you with hatred and loathing? Well, it happened to Jesus too. You're in good company. He knows what it's like. And he teaches you. He shows you. How do you get through that? Well, you look beyond it. You, the shame, when, when people are trying to shame, to disgrace you, they're despising you. Well, despise the shame. Despise the disgrace. Don't let it matter. Look forward to when Christ will come and will be revealed with him in glory. He looked forward to his exaltation. Well, you can look forward to that too. You have that to hang on to. When the Lord Jesus comes again, we will be raised with him in glory. We can hang on to that. We can also take comfort. Sinners at their worst, and this is not their intention, but even at their worst, sinners find themselves carrying out what Scripture said. It's our privilege to stand with the Lord Jesus, to be on his side, to cooperate and participate with him in having the Scriptures fulfilled in our lives, in our ups and downs. But even those who think to do us the most harm, they're fulfilling the Scriptures in union to the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of Man, Take heart. Don't be discouraged by your trials. Persevere, because the exaltation is also coming. Amen.